Explore Milwaukee's past and its future, one building at a time. This is Urban Spelunking with On Milwaukee's Bobby Tanzillo and me, Nate Immig, from 88.9. Well, Bobby, good to see you this week. We're talking about an Eastside institution. I think fair to call it an institution when it celebrates 20 years in business. I think so. Yeah, we're talking about the restaurant Tess on Bartlett and Bradford, originally a Miller Tide House. We'll talk about that later, but uh, 20 years for this neighborhood restaurant. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I, you know, Tess is a respected restaurant. People love it. As, so it's not surprising that it's lasted from that uh, standpoint. But I feel like it's almost sort of quietly lasted 20 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not It's not sort of mm-hmm. glitzy, glammy, seeking the limelight kind of restaurant. You know, it just kind of quietly goes about its business and... I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody really say anything bad about it. I think it's just one of those places that people know they can go and, and get a solid, um, interesting, well done meal in a nice place. Yeah, definitely. I went to UWM. I remember seeing, seeing this place busy and people talking about it and, uh, 20 years you make, you build that reputation. It's, it's, it's difficult to make it that long as a restaurant. So you gotta be doing something right to make it 20 years. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I don't, you know, you can ride a trend for a little while <laughs> and, you know, if you're not, if your kitchen isn't really bringing it, you might, you know, somehow be able to ride that out for a little while, but there's no way you're going 20 years unless you've got it really going on. Yeah. Well, of course the building goes back much, much, uh, much earlier, 1910. It was built, uh, originally as a Miller Tide house. Um, again, what's a Miller Tide house? A Tide house is uh, a kind of tavern. Yeah. So Tide houses were, um, it was an old, uh, British tradition that was sort of picked up by breweries in the United States in which breweries owned um, the building, often owned the furniture. You know, like if you go to the Miller archive, you can find like chairs that are tight house chairs that are engraved with the Miller logo. And I don't know. They owned all the, the furnishings too. Yeah. And then they basically leased it to an operator who then sold only that brewery's beer. Mm-hmm. And these... Right. The deals were sort of different sometimes, like some some breweries um, maybe didn't own the bar, but had a special exclusive deal with the tavern owner and gave him, you know, uh, branded glassware and furniture and blah, blah, blah. You know, there were there were variations on the theme, but generally speaking, it meant that it was owned by the by the brewery and leased to a bartender. But that became um illegal well prohibition made saloons illegal <laughs> and then repeal in 1933 when prohibition was ended made it illegal for a brewery to own a tavern which yeah, is which made, has changed slightly illegal kind of, yeah yeah which has changed slightly with you know the laws in more recent years have changed to say that breweries can have tap you know craft breweries can have tap rooms that you know that sort of thing but but technically breweries still can't own a bar so this was uh, built on a really prominent corner, as most tide houses were. Um, Bradford and Bartlett was busy uh, in 1910. It still is, of course, pretty busy today, as, as shown by Tess's endurance there. Um, but in the second part here, Bobby, we're going to get into this interesting circumstance that um, through licensing, where bars had to close while other bars were opening, and there was this bizarre like city task force uh, that had to handle this situation. Plus, in the second part here, we're going to get into a long-standing Milwaukee restaurant that brought the first salad bar to the city. Uh, it was there for 30 years as well. So that's coming up next on Urban Spelunking. We all wish we can find a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but have you ever considered that there might be one at the end of your driveway? That car, truck, or boat you don't need 
could power hours of your favorite on-air programming when you donate it to Radio Milwaukee. Pickup is free, and you can qualify for a tax deduction. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org slash cars to learn more. And we're back on Urban Spelunking at Bartlett and Bradford at Tess, um, formerly a Miller Tide House, opened in 1910. So how does the the Tide House chapter kind of wrap up and, and move to the next part? How does it, you know, the Tide House? Well, what's interesting about this um, Tide House is it's an example of what um, breweries used to do in that even sometimes when they weren't really planning to build a tavern right away, they would buy up land um, that they mm-hmm. partially because they thought, well, maybe someday we'll want to put a Tide House here, um, but also partially because they didn't want their competitors to put a Tide House there. <laughs> Yeah, right, um, yeah. So Miller actually bought this land a number of years, and it just sat empty uh, until it built this place in 1910. So I assume there was there were roads there at that time, right? So they recognized that this was going to be a busy location, having this prominent cross street. Yeah, and it was a growing neighbor. You know, the east side was really growing at that time. So I think they could see that, and they were like, they would go into these neighborhoods that are starting to to be platted and developed and expanding, and they would try and buy up corner lots, because corner lots, of course, were the most prominent mm-hmm. lots. And so this is an example of that. And, you know, Miller um, especially had, was really good with its real estate and bought up, owned so much property that when uh, prohibition hit, and I've written about this too, that when prohibition hit and they had to uh, stop brewing beer, basically, they, uh, the a good part of the reason the company survived was because they had so much real estate that they could sell um, and rent and that sort of thing. So their, their real estate holdings of which this was part, Help them survive. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about that those business, like those business decisions they made, you know, got them through prohibition. And you wonder, like, what what would brewing have looked like? What would Milwaukee have looked like if Miller didn't endure, you know, after prohibition? Absolutely, right, right. And so this one was interesting too because it's also an example of, um, you know, around this time there's there's a lot of expansion of tide houses in town. Miller is building them. Paps is building them. Schlitz is has been and is still building them. At this time, um, you get the occasional Gettleman one, you know, the occasional uh, Falk Brewing one over the years, you know. So what happens, though, is that a lot of um, tavern owners who are licensed are moving into these new buildings and they're transferring their license to the new building, um, which was allowed. I mean, they did it legally, but there were some questions at the time that there might be problems with this because of these sort of arcane laws that existed. And, um, cause there was, there was like a cap on the number of taverns and tide houses. Right. 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 And I, so what happened is a bunch of these places, like 200 of them ended up, um, sort of out of legality. You know what I mean? Like they were licensed, uh-huh. but there was an argument that they shouldn't have been licensed so that they were, they were losing their licenses. Uh, and so in, um, there was a huge de- de- effort by various politicians to pass legislation that would save these saloons, but none of that ended up happening. And like 30,000 people in the city signed petitions saying, um, 35,000 people signed these petitions supporting the saloons. Um, but then ultimately, they're forced to close because wow. um, because of this issue between the, the what was seen to be like an illegal transfer of the, of the saloon licenses. So the, the person who had been running the place uh, in the building where a test is now was forced to close. And he, he closed for a full year. What he did for a year to survive, I couldn't tell you because I couldn't find any, any trace of that. Um, but what ends up happening is almost exactly a year later, um, 
1915, that was in 1914, 1915, they found a way to reopen these taverns and 167 of them wanted to get back in business. They wanted their license back. Um, yeah, the prob- I imagine, the right? Was, probably- yeah, yeah. The problem was because of this cap on the number of total saloons in the city, if, 170, uh, if 167 wronged saloon men were to get licenses back, then 167 people who currently held licenses would have to lose theirs. Wow. So what happened was, and I'm, I'm going to quote this from a, a newspaper thing I read, it said, the license committee has been steadily at work every day during the last two weeks investigating various saloons to classify them and make recommendations as to which should be closed. In determining which saloons shall be reopened after July 1st, the license committee will take into consideration a number of elements, including sanitary conditions. They were going to talk to the police to see, like, you know, um, were they seen as problem places, that sort of thing. But can you imagine now if, you know, the city basically was forced to tell 167 legally operating bar owners that you have to close so that we can give your license to 167 other previously legal, <laughs> legally licensed bar owners. You know what I mean? It's just like there's lo- there's losers no matter what. I mean, the first there was right. the, the 212 initial losers who lost their license because of this screw up that had nothing to do with them. It wasn't their fault, you know, and that now to give them back their livelihoods, you have to take away the livelihoods of 167 other legally operating businesses. Just it's bizarre. Yeah, we talk about like the good old days of history, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this almost seems like this almost seems like uh like, you know, not democracy, you know. Right, right. Like how how do how do you inform a committee and make these decisions? This must have sent like shockwaves through uh the tavern scene and the tavern owners in Milwaukee. I can imagine if they were considering sanitation and police and mm-hmm. um and then if if you end up having your license approved while somebody else's gets closed, I would almost be worried about like threats on the business or, you know, threats right, on right. your family. It's just this is easy. These were people's livelihoods yeah. right on the table. Yeah, you know? and in August of 1915, the newspapers ran a list of the newly relicensed saloons. Wow, okay, wow. And yeah. alongside a list of the newly delicensed saloons. So I'd, I'd imagine not not all of the places that were closed probably deserved it, right? I, 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 we're speculating here, of course, but I'd, I assume, I'd imagine yeah, I assume not. I mean, maybe maybe some were ones they were hoping to get rid of anyway. <laughs> sure, but all, you know? all of them, all, all right. 167, it sounded yeah, like, you know, they were probably docking people for whatever. Right, right. Just craziness, just craziness. Or if they didn't grease the right wheel, if, the, you know, if they didn't have that relationship with the, the person on the committee, it sounds really corrupt. Yeah, it really does, and I... I I can't imagine, you know, getting that that phone call that says, "Okay, we're taking your license away so that we can give it to the other guy, so so we can give it to Nate." <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want it. Well, maybe I would. I don't know. You might want it. Think of- 1915, right? Yeah, times yeah. are tough. Yeah, so let's jump ahead though to the 50s because I want to talk about Norman's Tap. Yes, Norman's Tap and the salad bar, yes. the relish bar. So, is that, what we, so that doesn't what come was. until later. But uh, William Norman opens Norman's Tap in um, in the fifties, okay. um, and he operated it until nineteen seventy, and that's when his son Kenny took over. And he, okay. um, there might have been food dur- during William's time, but it was never. It was never its reason for being. It was a ta- it was a bar, you know. Okay. Um, but Kenny puts in a full on kitchen, and he's starts making ribs there and chicken and all kinds of stuff. And soon like restaurant critics, just everybody says these are the best ribs in town. Um, 
everyone seems to agree that Kenny is making the best ribs in town. Um, and what's interesting, though, is when you went into the bar, which was everybody also commented about how dark it was in the bar, um, on, off to the right was a whole section where there wouldn't have been tables, but there was a relish bar. Okay, so that's like the precursor to the salad bar, the relish bar? And, the, you know, the description of the relish bar um, was a salad bar. It was it was the first. And, and you know, a year later or so, it's already then called a salad bar, and people are saying it's the, it was Milwaukee's first salad bar. And um, I don't know that there's official certification of which was the first salad bar but at the time <laughs> even back then there's no like official you can't go and look this up at city hall right the the first salad right, bar exactly. in the city <laughs> exactly um but even at that point you know in like the late 70s milwaukee restaurant critics were calling it the first salad bar so i think we have reason to believe it really is okay well, this is pretty official yeah yeah official enough for the urban spelunking podcast that's right right right, right. <laughs> no, you know not official enough for any sort of lawsuit or legal action but, uh, you know. um but so this was a beloved restaurant, and it ran until about 1984. Um, wow. And actually, the wow. ribs yeah. were so beloved that Kenny used to make them, and you could buy them frozen at Sendix on Silver Spring. So, like people, people really wow. wanted these. Uh, Kenny and his ribs. These ribs, yeah. Kenny Norman. And then um, after the restaurant closes, um, Kenny operates a truck, a food truck, on like Prospect and North for. 12 years or something after that for a really long time. Um, what a trailblazer. He's ahead of the food truck thing, yeah, the, salad, so he, the salad bar thing. And he was Kenny. sort of a quirky dude, I think. You know, like he he was definitely a unique guy and everybody, I think. Um, <laughs> How so? What do you mean? He had a sign uh, on the door of the restaurant that said, there's no provisions <laughs> oh inside for children or other small mammals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. You know, he was just like, he was just a, like a, Everyone seemed to agree he was a nice guy, you know what I mean? But just like a, uh, like just a, a big personality, let's just say. Yeah. You know? And so I think people were pretty sad when the restaurant closed, but he maintained this kind of East Side um, profile by running this truck for another dozen years after. So basically, if you went out there in the evening, you know, bar hopping or something, you could stop at the truck. And I think he still sold chicken and some other things like that. I'm not sure if he sold the ribs. Oh, yeah. No, he was selling the ribs. He was selling the ribs. He was selling hamburgers, hot dogs, ribs. I would think so, yeah. yeah. How do you I mean, not ribs sell the ribs, were, right? Come on. I mean, if any, if I know anything about Kenny, uh, he's <laughs> exactly, a rib guy. Exactly. <laughs> Kenny is your rib man. Uh, and then in the meantime, the, the restaurant on Bartlett becomes home to Miro's Serbian Cafe, which was also quite popular and lasted for about 10 years, I think. So some pretty good runs at that spot. Yeah. I mean, I was there for 30 years, and then you mentioned 10 years for that other spot, and then this place, Tess, 20 years. Yeah, and that's what Mitchell uh, Wakefield, who owns Tess, said, too, that he was um, he, he'd read some of my other stories where, you know, like it's a litany of like a place, you know, a building that's had like a hundred tenants over the course of, you know, 75 years or something. Um, and his place is not like that. I mean, there were some people who came and went, um, but he's been there 20 years. Miro was there 10 years. Norman's was there 30 years. You know, that's a, that's a good run. Like you said, that's, that's a century right there. Practically we're getting close, you know? Cool. Well, I love learning about these Miller Tide houses. It definitely takes you back to you know Milwaukee's roots, and it re, you know, it's another reminder of how uh, I know the story has been told, but I mean, just how how critical brewing was in the city's in the city's early days, and and building you know what we know now. And I think about like these lots that like we talked about in the first half that got that got built up and turned into these institution taverns that that endured and lasted you know yeah, for decades. 
Yeah, and some of them have become like this. You know, uh, Tess is more a restaurant than, I mean, it has a bar, but it's it's sort of more the part of the city's dining tradition than its bar tradition. And you think back to Three Brothers, too, what a beautiful home Three Brothers has, which oh, yeah. exists only because Schlitz built it as a tight house. You know, so there is the the beer in the city has a has a has a lot of tentacles, had a long reach. Yeah, and with the tight houses too, it's like because the they were owned by the breweries, they you, they made them more special. They just you know they paid a little bit more attention to some of those architectural details outside. The yeah. buildings just had a little bit more character, you know. And, and they could afford that, right? Because they had the means to make that happen. If it was just an individual tavern owner trying to build his own building, he might not have the money to to fund that beautiful turret out front with the spinning globe. <laughs> so were tight houses by? I mean, I bet the everyman bar owner probably resented these tight houses at the time. Um. Yeah. Except I don't. They, I don't get the sense there were a ton of completely independent bars out there at the time. I think, oh, okay. the, at least in Milwaukee, there were so many Pabst tied houses, so many Schlitz tied houses, so many Miller tied houses, plus smaller amounts of tied houses for some of these other smaller brewers like Cream City and, and Blatt's and Gettleman and all this. Um, that by the time you did all that math, I'm not sure that really there were a whole lot. I've, I'm not sure I've investigated any or more than a couple at most that were not tied to a brewery somehow. Well, I can say, Bobby, now I kind of want a, I kind of want a Miller High Life and a salad <laughs> from a salad bar. <laughs> See, this is where we, this is where we differ because I want the ribs. Yeah, oh yeah, get the ribs too. What are we doing here? What am I, yeah. <laughs> well, what a what a great story and definitely some some pictures to uh, check out as always in the story that we've got linked in the description box of this of this podcast. Whatever you're listening to, whatever platform, just click on the show notes and find a link to Bobby's story right there. Podcast here on 88.9, produced by Kenny Perez. And if you could take just a moment and rate and review the podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback. And if you aren't already a subscriber, please do subscribe. We've got new episodes every Tuesday exploring a different building around Milwaukee. Bobby, talk to you next week. Talk to you, Nate. Thanks.